Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Judge Business School. Um, so my name is Matthew Grimes. I am one of the co-directors, uh, co-academic directors of the Entrepreneurship Center here. Um, I'm a reader in innovation and entrepreneurship uh, at the Judge Business School. Uh, the Entrepreneurship Center is, of course, the host of tonight's event. Um, Enterprise Tuesday is not only an opportunity for um, us to hear from some of the world's most inspired and inspiring entrepreneurs, but also a real opportunity for each of you to connect with one another. Um, so I would encourage you to take advantage of this opportunity to speak with each other, uh, find opportunities to connect, collaborate toward the development and growth of new ventures. Um, at the Entrepreneurship Center, we are devoted to helping young entrepreneurs um, at, you know, build, build new ideas, um, create new insight for teaching, and develop new uh, world-class research in, on the topic of entrepreneurship. Um, so I want to thank you all for being here today. Uh, tonight, we're going to hear from two of those uh, inspired individuals. Um, it's going to be a little bit of a rolling introduction. I'm going to introduce Michael, uh, who will then introduce Adam. Um, Michael is, um, is quite the renaissance man, not only as an entrepreneur, but uh, he's a TV show host, an author. A, um, he, founded, he founded Startup Britain here in the UK. Um, he he um, is an honorary fellow here at the Cambridge uh, Judge Business School. Um, interestingly, uh, a lot of his work focuses on the topic of mission and purpose within organizations, a critical topic for um, not just, not just young and new ventures, but also large organizations, um, a topic that is also near and dear to my heart and my research. Um, so I'm excited to hear both of you explore some of these issues tonight. So thank you both. Thank you very much indeed. And great to be here. And I'm, you know, I'm thrilled to be described as a Renaissance man. I can live with that. Uh, great, great introduction. Thank you so much also. Um, mentioning my book, Mission. Um, it is available in all good bookstores. I just, in case you're worried um, and you want to know that, it's sort of, I've checked it out at Waterstones. You can go down there straight after this event with so few shopping days for Christmas. Who knows where you might want to go. Now, listen, it's great to have you here um, today. And I'm um, looking forward, greatly looking forward to um, interviewing Adam momentarily. Before we do, I just wanted to make sure that we have a great time for the next hour. So I need to know, are, 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 we, are, are you with me on that? Excellent, great, great. So, uh, and any golfers in the room? Random question. Yeah, that's the first one. Not many. No, anybody ever sort of watched it late at night? Yeah, you know, coming, there we go. A few students coming in, or maybe at the pub. And actually, you know, when sort of like a golfer putts in, there's a particular type of clap that you might do. With me, kind of, let's try it. Just kind of a bit, bit like this, right? Yeah, okay, right. Yeah, there we go. That's it. You've been there. There we go. Right, okay, right, okay. So, if we were to agree, that's the lowest level of emotional engagement tonight. <laughs> that's, that's the lowest level. So Adam's wanting to know what kind of uh, round of applause he's working for at the end. Uh, let's try middle of the road. We might have gone to something that sort of we might be shocked in amazement. We might feel the need to sort of give a round of applause. I don't know, sort of like um, when Jeremy met Teresa the musical. Let's say, for example, you know, would be my, but you might sort of feel the need to sort of give a round of applause at the end of it. Might be a bit more like that. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. All right. 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 Now, I want you to save this last round of applause because Adam Ballon is one of the great um, entrepreneur success stories of the last 20 years. I, one of the three founders of Innocent Drinks. Um, I think that um, there's there's plenty of product placement here tonight. I mean, I have to say, um, so not, not only has he built one of the iconic um, success stories of, of UK entrepreneurship and indeed now internationally. 
Um, but he's gone on to be a highly successful investor in some of the most exciting names in, the, in entrepreneurial Britain today. Um, I think he deserves a hell of a lot more than a golf clap. So can I just say on one, two, three, the best that you can give. So one, two, three, Adam, welcome. So, well, I've, got, I've got to say, I didn't know where that was going at all when we were on the golf club. Neither like, did I. <laughs> Great to see you, Adam, and thanks so much for, um, for joining us. Now, we're, we're also live streaming as well tonight, so do join the conversation. I think the, um, the Twitter address is up there. I've managed to knock my mic off. So while I'm just sort of reasserting it, can you um, give us a sense of that, that story? I'd like to sort of invite you to, first of all, sort of kick us off with Innocent Drinks. Okay. So, who's heard the story of Innocent Drinks before? A few people, quite a few people. So, let me just quickly, br briefly go through it. So, I, I, John, Richard and I met at, at Cambridge in 91. Here, we were all at John's, um, and we had a great time here. Uh, we did lots of little student ventures together, design agencies, talent agencies, ran parties, that sort of thing. The, the traditional student kind of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial stuff, but, you know, uh, we went into proper jobs af afterwards um, and uh, actually shared a house together, so the four of us living together. Um, and every holiday we would always say, come on, let's, let's actually start our own business, let's start our own business. But you know, a lot of people have these conversations and the thing is, what is it that you're going to start? Um, and probably four years into our careers, we, we were driving down to go snowboarding south of France and we were like, okay, come on, we've got 10 hours in a car, let's actually come up with an idea. Um, and so the filter we gave ourselves was like, right, what annoys us about life and what would we do to make it better? Um, and I suppose smoothies came out of that thought. Balance the bad. Balance the bad. Mm. We all lived in London. We were going out a lot, partying quite hard, working hard at the same time, eating bad food, feeling a bit guilty about it, wishing it was easier to eat more healthily. Remember, this was sort of late 90s, so quite different environment to, to now. And we just thought, actually, this bottle of... Pure, unadulterated goodness, just loads of fruit crushed up, put in a bottle, was something that we would love and, you know, other people would love as well. So it's like, actually, this is a really simple way of solving a problem. So we gave it the overnight test. It sort of came back from our skiing holiday and started researching it. Um, and we got it to a point where in summer of 98, we were ready to launch. Um, mm. But one, a couple of us were still working. We were like, are we actually going to jack, jack in our proper jobs to do, to do this slightly nuts smoothie thing? And so we did a market test, and that's the market test we write about in our little, um, little brochures and stuff, which is crossed up 500 pounds of fruit, uh, put it in bottles, and sold it at a little market stall um, at a festival that we were actually organising, and put up a big sign saying, should we give up our jobs and make these smoothies, and got people to vote with the empty bottles. Yes and no. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, the, the no-bin was, was pretty empty, other than those from my mum sticking them in. It's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, lads, come on, I paid for a good education, what are you doing, working out smoothies? Um, but the yes bin was full, um, and it really gave us, genuinely gave us the confidence to say, you know what, sorry, we're going to resign. Right. We resigned. So, before we, before we go into what happened next, mm. um, in terms of, I guess, when you knew that you might want to do something for yourself, that actually when you were, I mean, because, you know, you spoke about like, kind of your university days, and you yeah. spoke about that kind of early sort of position of working for someone else, but yeah. I suppose... What made you suddenly think, you know, I could actually do something, I could actually create something, run my own business? Um, I think it was a sort of dawning realisation. It wasn't like I was born to be an entrepreneur. I don't think that was, that was it, actually. Um, it was kind of, 
you know, doing a little bit at, at, at school and then at college starting to do more, meeting John and Rich and uh, you know, other people who sort of wanted to... So people were, people were the difference? People were the difference. And I think we were very fortunate, three of us coming together. We're all quite different, but we actually care about the same things and look at the same problem from different angles and all have that same ambition. Right. And that really helped. So people, it's great. that's a good answer because obviously we're talking about winning teams, we're talking about actually how you build mm. that. But it, when you sort of... I, I read that on the issue of fruit... You said that we only ever really ate it when we were at our mum and dad's. <laughs> I mean, you know, how do, how do you sort of, like, go from having a fairly sort of tangential connection with something to actually saying, you know what, we could build something really great with this? I mean, how do you get the passion for something? How do you get the idea? Um, well, we, weren't, we certainly weren't the first to, to, to make smoothies. There were smoothies out there. You know, Boots were, had a private label smoothie. So we weren't trying to claim that we invented anything brand new. But what we did do was we saw what was out there and thought, right, we can do this better. Um, and because that stuff that's out there doesn't appeal to us. It doesn't say natural. It doesn't say unadulterated. It's not the sort of way we would present it. So um, I think it was... But it was also just finding... A, seeing that, that it solved a problem of ours. Right. So... we're at, very simple. We're at the market stall. We're at the market stall. So the vote is better than 52 to 48? It was, it was uh, much more... <laughs> it was much clearer than that. I bet Richard now hoped it was a bit better than yeah. that, didn't he? <laughs> we stacked the odds in our favour, to be fair. I don't think there was any other drinks for sale on the green, and it was a blazing hot summer's day. So, you know, it was like people were desperate for some, some fluids. But um, still, it was kind of... A bit of it was genuinely market right. research, and a bit of it was just giving us the confidence to actually go and... So, how are you feeling? What's, you know, you go to the pub afterwards and you say, right, we've done the day selling. What, what was the chat? What yeah, was, what... Where it was like, God, we're going to have to do this. And actually, actually, the funny thing was, on the Monday, we were having to resign, and, um, and so we all agreed we were resigning. And Richard calls up at about 10 o'clock. He goes, have you resigned? <laughs> I'm like, no, not yet. He goes, when, when are you going to do it? Because afterwards, it turned out, he was totally paranoid that the whole thing was set up by me and John to get him to resign. <laughs> to get him to resign pointlessly. My point is going to be we really trust each other, but I don't think we did at that point oh. yet. But, um, uh, yeah, and so we what, all resigned, and, and it was like, right, let's, let's go and do it. And actually, that was in August 98, and we thought, right, we'll be on the market in so, September. So what's the biggest doubt you're going through in August 98? Well, in August 98, we're, we're like, well, we slightly rushed this to get it ready for, the, for summer. So have we done it? Have we done it right? And actually, that was the best thing we ever did. We unpicked everything we did. We changed the way we made it. We changed what we, it was called, because at that green, it was called Fast Tractor. And the reason... Stay with me on this. The reason it was called Fast Tractor is because the guy who was helping us make it was a crazy carrot farmer from Newark called Jeff. And he was probably in his mid-70s, and he was incredibly proud of having made everything on his farm and carrot pressing by hand. He basically made all the machinery. And he was squeezing carrots for Pret-a-Manger at the time. And, um, and he grew the carrots, and he told us he used the fastest tractors to gather the carrots so they'd be super fresh when he brought them into his little carrot press that he'd built in, in his own shed um, so that Pret would get really you know, fresh carrot juice. So we thought, what a nice idea. That's a sort of nice link. We'll fast tractor. We'll use that. And obviously people were like... <laughs> What are you, is this engine oil? Is this, is like, what are you Sponsored by Castrol so, GTS. So probably the most important thing is we changed the name, and that, that helped. And how, how quickly did you change the name? Was uh, it? Oh, well, now, the naming was really quite hard, because it, it, sort of... We, we started at the very beginning thinking, right, come on, what's the name, what's the name, what's the name? We're like, no, no, that's not that important. Let's, do, let's work out how you make it, how you market it, what the cost bar will be, all that sort of good stuff. Um, but it's starting to get closer and closer to the launch date, and we still didn't have a name. And then we came up with a name, and that was Naked. And it was like, great. And, you know, because it's kind of unadulterated. And, 
And we were about four weeks from launch, and the trademark lawyers called us up and said, uh, sorry, we messed up. Uh, you know, we said it was OK, naked, well, it's, it's taken. And we're like, oh, come on. So anyway, so it was literally dictionary looking for synonyms for unadulterated, and, pure. And OK, so there's a lot of methodology in that. Yeah, so, yeah but it was, uh, I mean, we uh, sat in design so agencies with you know, big boards up, so with loads of names everywhere. And it was one of those processes that took nine months, and yet it took two seconds. Right. Let's just stick with that year. So we're in the late 90s. Blockbuster Video is an innovation. It's probably one of the highest tech companies in the world at that point. By the way, turns down an offer to buy Netflix a couple of years later because it doesn't want a mail order service. Anyway, see what happened to them. Oh, what a difference. Right, so tell us about the business conditions. How easy was it to set up the business? I know we're supposed to be talking about top teams. We're mm. going to get there. But tell us about the, the trading conditions at the time. What was the entrepreneurial vibe like in terms of setting up that business? Well, so it, it, we, we set up at the, just at the sort of start um, of the first dot-com boom. So we were sat in our little sort of studio unit in Labrick Grove, kind of with a palette of going off fruit juice that we really had to sell quite quickly. And, you know, we were reading stuff about last minute and the whole thing floating for hundreds of millions. We were like, are we sure we're doing the right thing here? Because <laughs> this feels like everyone else is doing the right thing and we're sort of messing around with fruit juice. And, and it was quite interesting. It was like, well, we don't really understand what's happening there. Mm. Um, but we kind of know that we're making nice fruit juice and we can sell it for more than it costs us to make and people seem to like it and, well... Let's carry on. And actually, that was we we did have that conversation, and and I'm glad we stuck doing it. Did you self-identify with the word entrepreneur back then? Um, it was a much less often used word, actually. Um, I mean, I suppose so. We, you ended up getting called that. I didn't necessarily think of myself as that. Mm. So let's let's be you launch. Yeah. Tell us about employee number one. Well. In, now, the thing is, when you start a business, it's, it's really hard to find people because it's like, why would anyone work for a startup? Now, that's probably slightly less true these days, but it certainly was true um, late 90s. Um, and so it was Richard's brother-in-law. Richard's brother-in-law. Because yeah, so he was basically the only person that would work for us. So, well, so how long did he last for? Yeah, no, he lasted <laughs> quite a long time. And then, and then actually, the second employee was, was Dan Germain, who we knew from college here, and he's... Um, basically, only just left innocent after right. twenty years. So, so it a lot friends. So, a lot of entrepreneurs will hire people that are in their immediate Absolutely. social family circle. So, so, innocent was no different. Absolutely no different. And then we, we hit on the idea of putting the adverts on our job our job adverts on our bottles, and that started to widen the widen the network a little bit. So, how soon was that? Um, probably about three or four months in. Three or four months started, in. Yeah, we were just like, right, come on, we need to get people in the door. So let's. So, so the big breakthrough is Waitrose. Is that right? Funny, there, there, there was, was a lot of different breakthroughs. I mean, the first breakthrough actually was the, the very first shop that we sold to, which was Out to Lunch, a little cafe in this studio unit that we sold, um, took 16 bottles, and our business plan said that it had to sell eight bottles a day for us to hit our numbers. Um, and so we sold so them the 16 bottles and uh, before lunchtime and then went back to the office, kind of slightly panicking that if they how didn't really, how, it's gonna, <laughs> how long will it take? And, da, da, da. and of course, we, we managed to procrastinate so long in the office that by the time we went back to check how many they'd sold, it was shut. So we were like, oh my God, this is hopeless. Um, but it was, there were some high windows and we sort of climbed up on these sort of milk crates and we were <laughs> looking in. It's like, there's only four left. That means it's 12. That means we're 50% above our eight rate of sales. They target. might put them in the and fridge. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so that, that was like, that was literally, I remember that moment. It's like, oh, my God, this might work. You know, so it's that, that sort of...
But you got it trialled in 10 Waitrose stores, didn't yes. you? Yes. So, and, yeah. and you went around and bought the uh, product yourself? All of it. To, well, <laughs> no, not all of it. <laughs> but you did do you some get, of it, You right? did a bit of it, definitely, definitely. You've got to get the, the engine moving. You've got to get the engine moving. Um, absolutely. I mean, you know, you just did what you could to get, get the momentum going. I mean, the, fundamentally, the product worked, so people wanted to buy it, but you gave it a little helping hand. Right. In terms of a helping hand, that sounds like a sort of uh, a new sort of retail chain sort of logo, doesn't it? <laughs> A helping hand, every little helps. Um, so, in terms of that early team that you built, so mm. you go beyond your immediate, um, you know, sort of family and friends, you're advertising on the bottles. Give us a sense of how that team developed in that early startup phase, in terms of when you look back, who are the, who are the key, who, who are the people in your kind of like mental sort of photo album? Who are the people yeah. that sort of make up that? Yeah. Well, I think. Um, We'd never employed people before we started doing this, so we were completely new and making it up as we as we went along. Um, and I think it was it was probably three or four years in that the realization that if you get someone that's absolutely brilliant versus someone that's just really good or someone that's okay, the difference was immense and very personally to your life. Um, so I remember I, I hired a lady called Gemma who was actually experienced at doing the supermarket sales job, and she did a brilliant job. And beforehand, I had been doing it, slightly winging it. Um, so immense at this point is, well, she, that person's got the competency yeah, she, to she, do something you can't do. Exactly. It's like, oh, that's how you meant to do it. Right. It was like, ah, and that made a massive difference. Like, ah, right, this is the way forward. And so at that point, we really started to raise the bar about on the type of people that we hired, and that made a huge difference. So when a lot of entrepreneurs will say hire for attitude, mm -hmm. would, would, do you support that? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think in the end we said hire, we said hire for values, um, then capabilities and experience. That was sort of our order. Mm. Um, and values was really important, although we didn't really codify the values until we were probably about 50 strong in the business. Because at first you, you, you all just sat around and you kind of knew what everyone was thinking when there was three of you. And then when there was 10, it was all still a small group. And, and then when you got to 20 or 30, you'd say, oh, you just have to... We're innocent. We have to behave innocently. And mm. then you started to realise that people took that in different ways. So some, for some people, being innocent was actually you know, making as much money as we could out of Waitrose. Other people were like, God, if we make any money, that's bad because that's not what we're about. We should be giving it back to mm. people less fortunate than ourselves. So, they, so the people started to split as to what they interpreted the business uh, to mean. I mean. I mean, one thing I always think about is that, you know, you were a vanguard of change, right? You know, you were seen as a purposeful company. A lot of people buy into the mythology, if you like, of fruit towers, what you stood for, the kind of innocent way. But back then, this was like all a bit kind of hippie capitalism, isn't it? Is that your, your... I mean, how do you get people to buy into the fact that you might be the new wave, you might be the big change? I mean, I think, I think we always... Um, we made no bones about we wanted to be commercially successful because we think actually that's the way in a capitalist world you change the world for the better. Mm. So, so we were very clear that we wanted that success, but at the same time, it was always having an eye to the bigger picture. And this, this stuff seems sort of second nature now, but as you say, it wasn't necessarily so front and centre 20 years ago. Um, but it just seemed to be the right thing to, right. to do. Um, but when you look at that, so you're in it, you're yeah. a shareholder, you're the yeah. entrepreneur, but when, you're, when you've got people that are potentially giving up careers, they're coming to you, you're still not that known. Yeah. What is the thing that helped you build that early winning team in terms of getting people to believe that their future might be with you, a company that's very different yeah. from the run of the mill at that time? So I think, I think what we got right was being really clear about what the vision for the business was, uh, where we wanted to go. We wanted to be the world's favourite little juice company. That was, our, that was our sort of thing. And we were very clear about what our purpose was. We wanted to make healthy food and drink that 
natural that helps you live well and die old. That was, that was our sort of, that was our rallying call. That was why we get up on a wet November morning. Um, and then we were really clear on what our values were. Um, and by actually being able to articulate that stuff really clearly and then have some substance behind it of the things that we did, I think people were like, okay, they might be just some guys in a shed in Hammersmith, but actually they're sort of, they've thought this through at least and they know where they're heading. And that, that actually means a lot. So tell us about liftoff. So when 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 you look back on that journey to the kind of you know multi multi million pound business you've ultimately created, was there a pivot? Was there a moment in time where you where the three of you sit down and go, this is really happening? There wasn't one. There were there were a series of things. So the first one was literally that. Well, it was the jazz on the green with the with the yes and no bins. That was like, oh right, okay, we can we can do this. Second one was the uh, the first shop. Looking in, they've sold 12 bottles, great. Third one was probably, we got a, the first chain, which was Great American Bagel Factory, was the, was the chain. That was like, they had, didn't have just one shop, they had 10, <coughs> so we got in there. Next one was Waitrose. Um, then I think it was probably, it was probably when we launched our cartons. So going from little bottles to cartons and did a big buy one, get one free in Tesco. And the volumes just went absolutely bananas. And we'd advertise it on TV at the same time. And it suddenly, it completely changed the set. So, so how many so years all, in is that? So that is probably six, seven years in. Six, seven years yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that then suddenly, back, actually, no, it was probably not. No, it was probably five. It was probably five, and it just suddenly went bang like that. And in terms of sustaining the culture, creating yeah. that team, yeah. what were the what were the stress what were the stresses, the pressures in doing that? Well, when the business is growing fast, I mean, it's it's. It, I think one of the things actually that we learnt um, from I think Apple, someone at Apple told told us this it was like better a hole than an asshole um, which basically means don't hire the wrong people however desperate you are so and and you know I think that's that is good advice because it is so easy when you're in the midst of it so just oh my god I just need someone to do this bit and actually by being disciplined say no no I'm going to really keep the standards high and I'm going to get the people who share our values that have the capabilities that we want and get the and maybe have the experience that I need that was what really Helped us. So on that on that differentiation, how, how did you recognise the bad apple? I mean, what, what 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 sort of what identified a person that just wasn't going to help the innocent culture grow? I mean, you don't always get it right, but I mean, a lot of it is you spend. I mean, interview time. You, you spend talking to people, and the and it's actually challenging people to to probably do the job that they're meant to do. Mm. Interviews can just be a nice chat, and people can talk about <coughs> all sorts of stuff. But actually, if you you know, for a salesperson, make sure that they can actually sell, give them a project to do and present back to you. And then you start seeing how, how good they are. Right. Um, so we spent a long time. At first, it was just a van. We called it the van test, three-hour van test, which basically, could you sit in the van um, delivering smoothies with this person for three hours? And that was kind of the test. Um, and then we got a little bit more sophisticated so than that. But, yeah, but, but, you know, so but there was a, a feeling that... There was a particular type of innocent person, was there? Yeah, or? yeah, I think I think so. It shared the values, that, which was basically you want to be commercially successful, but you want to do things in the right way that makes you feel proud and does does the world some good. You don't want to sh shaft other people. You want to um, uh, be sort of be natural at work. You know what we didn't want to do is people to come in and be a different person at work than they were at home. We wanted it's like we were mates first and foremost, so we wanted the whole thing to feel like it felt comfortable and friendly. So right. we didn't try and be anything that we weren't. And I think that was really important. So nine years of exponential growth. And then in the 10th year, in your own words, the 10th year, everything went to shit. <laughs>
Tell us about that. Yeah, right. so it had been, you know, it was uh, a great run, uh, and then so from '99 to 2007, everything actually went really well. I mean, obviously there were things that went wrong, but fundamentally the business really grew. Um, we'd hit a zeitgeist. Uh, you know, we managed to do, do it right, and everything went well. And so, of course, after nine years of everything working, you're like, right, okay, let's really scale this up. So we we pressed the button on international expansion. We'd always been behind the curve on hiring. We said, right, let's really get let's let, people are working far too hard. We've got to get a lot more uh, people more capacity, more into capacity. Into yeah. We've really got to do that. Um, and and so, you know, frankly, the costs sort of of the business went up a lot. And of course, then credit crunch happened in 2008. Um, and instead of growing to a planned 140 million, we went from 112 to 105 million. Right. So, so, so I, I read here that the, at one stage the company was shrinking at 2% a week. Yeah. So yeah, in terms... Pretty scary. So that's scary. And what's that doing to the team at that time? Are, are there lots of people leaving? No. Are you having to make redundancies? No, no, no. Not at that point because we, the, the business had been making a lot of money um, in 2007. So we had a bit of a cushion. But that cushion was eking away really, really, really quickly. Um, and yeah, at first, it, you know... People would just see that the, the top line wasn't coming in where, where we wanted it to be, but actually it was just not making any money anymore because sterling had collapsed, all our fruit was bought in euros. Uh, 2008 was just a weird year. Most years, if mango crop was good, apples would be bad, bananas would be fine, and all the fruit prices would sort of balance out. Mm. 2008, for some reason, everything was bad. So it just basically all our fruit prices went up and then sterling collapsed. So it was just horrible. And, and so given that obviously tonight's talk is about teams and about actually how teams weather good times and bad times, if you were to look at that period, I mean, yeah. obviously the comeback story arrives, you, you sort of get the business back on track. But in terms of the actual, what, what kind of values, how did the team dig deep to overcome? So, so I think so a couple of things. One, we, we decided to go sort of radically transparent on, with the team about what was happening. So beforehand, we talked about the top line margins and things. We hadn't really talked about, with, is the business making money? Is it profitable or not? We didn't really uh, share that with the team. Actually, we just realized at that time, often what happened when bad news, people know stuff isn't right. So what they were assuming, some people were assuming that we would literally be bust the next day. Mm. Other people were assuming it was all completely fine and we could just carry on. So once again, it was like, let's give people the information. So we started to share all the, prof you know, the whole financial performance of the business. So they could see the reality of it. Was that a good thing to do? Do you think you should have done that earlier? We should have done that earlier. Yeah, yeah, we totally... Is that advice that. to entrepreneurs in absolutely, the room here? Absolutely, right. You know, it's like... So, so people knew the whole lot, and, you know, if they, if they wanted to know even more detail, they, they could ask us, but we presented absolutely everything in terms of that. So, so the owners... It was... Uh, Morris Pinto, our angel investor, owned 20%, and the three of us earned the rest other than employee options. So employee options was about 10%. So there were no external financial investors, basically, other than our business angel at the beginning. So in terms of how you bounce back, if you were to look at some of the kind of critical factors yeah. that enable that, what would you, well, you summarise them as? Well, so I, let me just finish off on the people bit, because there's the transparency yeah. bit. And, then, and the other bit is we've been really proud of the fact we'd never made anyone redundant. Um, and in, in nine years, uh, the business had grown a lot. And sort of realised, actually, we probably should have made some people redundant because the roles had outgrown the people or they'd just got bored of the roles and actually it, things needed a bit of a bit of a shake-up. So, so we, the, the timing turned out that we had to do it actually just before Christmas in 2008.
2008, which felt like a terrible timing. But mm. once again, we went through the loop of, well, what would you prefer if, rather than before Christmas, come back to your new year and then then lose your job? That's that's even worse in our view. So we did it, uh, you know, paid people off handsomely, and every single one person who was made redundant came to the Christmas party, and we had the biggest Christmas party that we'd ever had, actually. Yeah. Um, which was a bit of a farewell to people. So there was, there was once again, it was like, look, it's a tough decision. It's a horrible thing to have to do to um, make people lose their jobs. But actually, if you do it in a sort of sensitive human way, it, it so, so prior a to those, way. So prior to those decisions, did yeah. you see that team as like an extended family? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, and we used to spend loads of time together every, every Friday night, weekends. I mean, we, you know, we were all, it was really close. But, but after the event, you realised that actually perhaps... There were some people that needed to go in the team. Yeah, and and you know what? That actually it just made everything so much better because the people who were there were like actually often it was the people who hadn't been doing a great job for whatever reason um, moved on, and actually everyone felt much more energised. So it was a definitely the right thing to, to do. Right. No, we should have done it. We should have done it. So just fast forward as the the route back mm. in terms because I, what what I want to get to is the arrival of Coca Cola. But mm. I mean, if, so take us up to to the decision to okay. bring a, a major multinational into the business. So 2008, things, the wheels are coming off, things are declining pretty quickly, profitability disappearing. We're like, right, we need, to, um, we need to cut back and basically make savings, stop the international expansion, stop the hiring in the UK, and just hunker down and weather this. Um, we sort of wrote the plan to do that and about six weeks later sat down and looked at it, and it just looked depressing. All the new stuff that we were starting in France and Germany, et cetera, we had to stop. All the MPD that we were going to be doing had to stop. It was just like, we've got our vision of being the Earth's favourite um, little juice company, and this is going backwards. This is not taking us towards that. And the reason we'd written that plan was because we said we don't want any external money. Um, we were like, look, we might have to revisit the assumption of no external money. Mm. Um, and by doing that, we could then write a plan that was like, right, sod it, invest through this tough time. And actually, that's what we did. So, so there's loads of things that, for you as an entrepreneur, you were learning at that time. You know, you, you're going to have to make some people redundant. You, you know, you're not going to become this sort of global success story unless you take in external investors. Yeah. How, how do you feel? How, what, what's the feeling when you're sort of going home at night and thinking, all the things I thought we were doing are turning out to be you know, basically false profits or false signals in terms of actually the ultimate success of the business. Yeah, I think it goes back to being really clear what really matters to you and to the business. And, you know, actually we'd sort of, it was almost a mantra, we're not going to take any external money. And actually it was like, that, that wasn't really what really mattered. It mattered our vision, making sure we could deliver it in the way we wanted to get to. And if actually that needed external money, then okay, let's, let's do that. <laughs> and so it was, I think, just getting very clear on what your objectives are really important. That's what it taught us. Right. But you're getting, do you think you emerged as a better entrepreneur? Uh, I mean, certainly uh, learned a, learned learn a few lessons. Right, learned a few lessons. Take us to the arrival of Coca-Cola. So, um, so we decided we would get external investment, um, and we thought what we'd do is get someone like Morris Pinto, who was our original investor, but rather put in 250 grand, which is what he put in. At the beginning, someone would put in 30 million, which is kind of what we needed to, to basically keep the uh, the show going in the same way. Um, now, our timing was pretty poor because basically IIM hit the world just as literally the week the uh, Lehman's went down. So the world was in a pretty messed up place and it, there was no one who was going to be writing a cheque for 30 million to a loss-making West London juice company. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, and 
so we thought, all right, so we're not going to get an angel investor. Um, what does that mean? And it was PE and it was trade. Um, and uh, interestingly, I mean, we'd had a conversation going with Cope because their headquarters in Europe were Hammersmith and ours were in Hammersmith. So every two years they'd sort of said, come on in. And, and it was interesting. They had the, all these the various different general managers there would have very different approaches. It would be like, uh, you know, if you ever think about doing a deal, you know, talk to us. You know, we'd be interested mm. through to... If you don't sell to us, we're going to crush you through to, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it completely, it, it totally, totally dependent on the style of the person. And um, anyway, so with the iron went out, and we, actually we hadn't even thought about Coke, but the, the iron went out. And of course, Coke, who obviously had been interested in the business, came back and said, yeah, look, we're, we're interested. This is a short-term thing. We believe in the long-term um, of the brand. Um, we think that's healthy. Let's let's talk. So they took 58%, is that right? No, no, they took, so, so, it was, so they took uh, 18%. Initially. Uh, initially. So they, but they they, moved. They, they, then we did, uh, it was a three-stage deal. They took 18, uh, money in first, 18% initially. Then uh, then our business angel got bought out. Uh, we took a bit off the table, but most of it's still in. And then back in, and then 2013, five years later, we finally exited. Right. So that was, sort of the, that, that was the journey. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, if I could take you right the way back to starting out the business and tell you that your ultimate destination would be to sell to Coca-Cola. Yeah. How, would you, how, would, how would your earlier self have responded to that? <laughs> no chance. <laughs> Absolutely no chance. We, we had a really detailed business plan and, you know, the end of it was five years out because you couldn't imagine you know, business, you know, doing this for longer than five years. And we had 20 people and the business uh, turned 8.6 million and we were like, Oh my God, if we hit that, that is absolutely amazing. And the reality is, I mean, probably be delighted if we hit that and stop there, but it just, we were fortunate in as much as the opportunity just turned out to be a shed load bigger than, than we ever dreamed. Did, did any of your team turn around and say, this is not who we are? We had, yeah, no, I mean, we had the uh, growth discussion quite early on because, uh, you know, in year three, we sort of tripled and, you know, we went from sort of milling a bit to four and a bit. And it was like, hang on, is this antithetical to what Innocent is? Because, you know, we're, we're suddenly growing really quickly and, you know, we're a small business and should this be what we're about? And it was the obvious realisation that, you know, big is not bad. You know, good, bad is bad and good is good and small is small and big is big. And so, actually, let's try and be big and good. And, and once we got over that mental thing, it was like, well, sod it, let's carry on. So, so a lot of critics, so, well, so what they'll say is that Innocent is like a, a lot of other businesses that sort of were seen as the profit with purpose movement of businesses. You look at Ella's Kitchen, you look at Innocent, Ella's goes to a major Fortune 500 company, yep. you go to Coca-Cola, and on and on, yep. Whole Foods goes to Amazon, yep. that actually this kind of sense of the new wave, the new kind of connected company, yep ultimately finishes up in the pockets of very large corporations that people have big question marks about the kind of the yeah. nature of their business model. Yeah, I mean... Did you sell out? Well, we sold, we uh, definitely yeah, sold uh, the business. We sold that. Yeah, we definitely yeah, sold the yeah. business. Um, but you know what? You walk in through the doors of Innocent today and it is better business. It is more innocent than it was when we walked down the doors five, five or six years ago. Um, Coke have been very smart, actually, about the way they've done it. They basically left it alone. Douglas and James, the two guys... That you know, it was our FD and our strategy director who we hired 15 years ago, do an amazing job of running the business. And the culture is exactly the same, if mm. not better. It's a, and it's just a bigger manifestation of what we started. Mm. Um, and, you know, these things don't always end like that at all. You know, 
I think corporations have sort of sometimes gone in and said, we'll do this better. You know, and now it's over to the big boys. And that's when stuff gets messed up. But you know, smart about it. And they just said, get on with it. And for them, they want innocent to grow. And they realize that health is an important part of you know, people's diets. And they've got to get more healthy stuff in. And innocent is a brilliant way of getting mm. more healthy stuff into people's bodies. So, so I, I kind of don't see the downside. Yes. Well, well, some people would some people say, like you know, Paul Lindley would say, yeah. I was an improving force yeah. in my buyer. You know, I helped them be a better business. Do you yeah. think Innocent helped Coca-Cola see that I mean, new I, world? I, or, I think or you've not? got to be a bit careful. Though. I mean, we're still tiny, you know, yeah. We're, yeah, and they're absolutely massive. So to claim well, we've changed Coca-Cola, I, I don't think that's, that's right. But, I, you know, I think the reality is that the resources of that business have massively helped Innocent grow, and I think Innocent does good stuff. And so I think it's a good thing. Right. Now, I'm going to keep pressing on on a direction of travel with the questions, but I'm also keen to get other views and opinions in. So if you've got, um, if you've got questions, do, do give me a quick signal and I, we, can, we, can, um, we can take them as we go along. Lady just up there. The financial... Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, it was the biggest decision of our lives. Um, it's like, who, is, who are we going to basically let on the shareholder register? Who are we going to do this deal with? And there were five different businesses we, we basically could have chosen. Um, and if you looked at any of the metrics, basically, what was going to be best for the long term of the Innocent brand? What was going to be best for the team? What was going to be best for consumers? What was going to be best for us? It, all of them were basically the deal that we did. Um, it actually turned out to be a relatively easy decision, although it was totally not the decision we thought we would make when going into the process. And so one of the big things that we did, we, we spent a lot of time with the team once it looked like it was going that way. Talking to the team, we had these um, things we used to call chat witches, which is just sandwiches and chats. And the idea wasn't that it was a, like something in Salem. The yeah. chat, the chat witches chat are witches, here. Yeah, <laughs> burn them. Yeah, <laughs> so just burn the chat witches. Um, <laughs> And it, was, and it was an opportunity, you know, it was a town hall meeting, whatever you call it, it was an opportunity for people to speak up. And, God, there was a lot of people who were like, oh, my God, this thing that I love is suddenly, and there's this thing that I don't understand or, or hate, is, is like, what the hell is going on? But actually, by giving people the facts, giving the transparency, saying this is what it's going to do, this is what it's not going to do, um, one person left the business as a result of, of, of that transaction. They said, I can't, I can't deal with it. But, there were a lot of people when they first heard were like, oh, my God, this is a terrible thing. But no one left. And I think you go back in there and you talk to people and people say it was totally the right call. Mm. Just in terms of, say, obviously today is all about creating a star team. I mean, starting on this idea about three friends coming together. I mean, I remember my, I, I worked, I built my business with a friend. But yeah. my, my grandfather was said to me that partnerships are the worst ships that sail the sea. I mean, <laughs> and so this idea of actually friends coming together. Yeah and creating it. I mean, you worked out, but was there, were there any lessons in terms of that, in, that, that initial dynamic that you... I mean, what were the tensions and stresses? Well, I mean, it, it's funny, because actually on paper, it maybe shouldn't have worked. You know, Morris Pinto, the guy who did Investor, I mean, us at the beginning, five years later, he said, OK, when you came in, basically, it, it broke all the rules of investing. You had no experience. There was not a clear leader. Uh, you were friends, rather than colleagues. Uh, yeah, it was an industry dominated by giants, and uh, there's no barriers to entry. So, basically, there's not a really good reason to do this deal at all. Apart from that, so, I love apart it. Apart from that, I love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, 
but, but actually, it kind of worked. And I think one of the reasons it, it worked was actually it came down to the, the friends bit. And that is, as I said at the beginning, we, we're quite, three of us are quite different, but we wanted to do the same thing and wanted mm. to head in the same direction. And we implicitly trusted each other after we got over the uh, dining thing. Uh, we implicitly um, trusted each other. And, and that just, if you trust people, Life is just a lot easier. A lot, a lot easier. A lot, and and the, so there was no politic, there was no friction, there was no, there was no sort of ego battles at the top of the business. And that just meant that the culture, I think, was a positive one. But, but in a long relationship, there must have been moments where you felt... Well, well, I'm not saying there was, but, I mean, there must have been moments that were tougher. In yeah, terms, yeah. And, and actually, I suppose the question is, what's the downside of a friendship-based business and what's the upside in terms of going forward? I mean, I've got to say, I, I haven't seen many downsides. Um, you know, we, we had three massive arguments, one about the colour of the wall in the first office, one about the colour of the floor in the second <laughs> office, and one about some shelves. So, basically, the solution to all that was, like, get the someone else... The shelf chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I read it with interest. <laughs> and we, it was screaming uh, rows. I mean, it was proper screaming rows. And it was a small business at the time, you know, it was 20 people. So people were like, uh, what's going on here? Is this whole thing going to fall apart? Um, but, you know, and the reasons that why they were roused like that was because there's no reason I thought that Richard would have a better view on what colour the shelves should be than I should have, you know. This was, this was a purely subjective thing, and he's not going to win that argument, right? Whereas actually, in, uh, it, when it came to the business, we had very clear areas that we actually ultimately probably deferred to each other on, and we... So we talk us through what they we were, were challenging on the each three. Other. So, so John is an engineer by background, so basically he loved making stuff. Um, and the process and the operations of the way things work. Richard, from advertising, so he, really great consumer insight, just what the, just real simple way of saying what do people want and making it clear. And I like doing deals, so it was basically the commercial side. Mm -hmm. so, so the three of us kind of ended up deferring to each other in our areas of specialisation, but that's not to say we didn't push and challenge, but we always knew that the challenge was coming from a good place. So it's sort of... You know, we would stop work on a Friday at 6 o'clock and then, you know, be out with our wives or girlfriends at 8 o'clock on the fr Friday evening together and we'd go on holiday together and, and it's still like that. And, of course, a lot of entrepreneurs identify with that, that actually their, their work is part of their social life, it's part yeah. of their family life. I mean, that's, that's, the, modern that's the modern story thing. of entrepreneurship. Although we actually were quite disciplined in not trying to avoid talking about work whilst we were sort of not, not working. We would see each other but try to flip into... Mode. Was there a cope? So, if, if kind of like the three of you are kind of you've, you're great friends, you're building something together. How did you actually sort of enforce that thing of actually, well, we're going to get out of the business and we're going to keep our friendship going through other mechanisms? I mean, do you have to literally start putting phones in a box and have all sorts of things to actually make it happen, or was there just a kind of something no, one of more instructive did, on it? No, we did. We, what, what we were good at is constant communication. So actually, we. Four o'clock every Monday, the three of us would sit down and spend two hours together going through stuff in the business. And then every quarter, we would go off-site and check that the long-range things were still aligned, that we still were interested in what we were doing, that the roles we were doing were good, that we thought that the business was heading in the right direction. And by just doing the, that alignment bit continuously, that, that helped massively. In terms of that team, I mean, I was, I was reading that team, team members could add an additional descriptor to their job spec of agitator, activator, ambassador, or I love this one, protector. I quite like that. Uh, um, hello, Ave Protector. Anyway, so in terms of, um, in terms of why, that, why that sort of move, why that kind of personalisation, give us a sense of actually the, your thoughts about 
growing that winning team, that star team? Um, and did it last? In, in innocent terms. Yeah. We'll, yeah, get, we'll move on to the investment. I mean, in yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think it did. I think if he, um, you know, one of the things I'm proudest of of the business is actually what people have gone on to do, and that 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 team that that we started there has gone on to do some brilliant other businesses, um, nothing to do with us, but mm. they're the sorts of people that have just gone on and make stuff happen. So, so I think that's a great you know, vindication of sort of the, the thing that we started there. Um, so I think, I think yeah, it, it did work. But I mean, you talked about the argument about the, the, the wall paint and things yeah, like that, yeah, but, yeah. but actually the, you know, a lot of the kind of mythology yeah. about Innocent is that there was this thing called Fruit Towers and it had AstroTurf and yeah, it had a whole yeah. load of stuff that had that. mythology, that's true. There was Fruit Towers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, I'm, yeah. Sure. no I'm sure, well, mythology always has a basis <laughs> in truth, doesn't it? But I mean, you know, there's this kind of idea that, you know, there was something a bit, there's a bit of X factor here. Yeah. That actually, you know, this was not the stuff that was going on at this point in a lot of other businesses. In yeah. terms of where you were getting your inspirations from, in terms of the how and the why yeah. you were doing this. I mean, yeah, once again, I think I think we we plagiarised other people. We got good ideas from other people. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like all coming up with this this amazing stuff. So you know, some of the stuff about purpose, vision, values was Jack Welch's book, and you know, bits and business books. Um, the stuff from I don't know, grass-covered vans was dumb and dumber. I mean, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's, you just take good ideas from where you can get them, and and we did was. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, dumb and dumber. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Excellent exactly. movie. Yeah, right, that's exactly. A, that's a... Muck cuts van, whatever it's oh. called. I can't remember what the name is, but yeah, that that sort of thing. So it was just, uh, it was just trying to get the, those those ideas from anywhere, and I think that's that's what a lot of entrepreneurship is. It's about pulling together these existing ideas and repackaging them into something that is your own. Now, to some degree, the band stayed together because you've gone on to found Jamjar together. You've become investors in, yeah. in business. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's, it's funny. So after 2012, we were our last year at Innocent, and we were thinking, right, what's our, what's our next gig? We want to do something else together. And, and it was interesting. We, whilst we were sort of running the business in that final year, it was very difficult to actually start thinking of the next thing. So we were like, OK, well, let's, we've been doing a bit of angel investing. Let's just set up an office and do, do that uh, sort of whilst we think of our next idea. And I suppose six years down the line, that's what we're doing. Um, so it, it, funny enough, it's become our next idea, actually. We run an investment business now. Um, and, and that was your natural interest, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the, the finance side. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's not actually when I, but I don't, the investment business for us is really not a finance business. It's absolutely a people business. It's people business. So it's totally a people business. That's, we're massively incentivised HR consultancy. That's, that's Right, I'm going to come back to that because I want to talk about some of the yeah. investments. We're going to take a question here and then we'll go there. Yeah. Taking a step back to your innocent drink star, the raising funds from Coca-Cola. Mm. Uh, was it a strategic uh, decision to raise from Coca-Cola or was it the economic situations around that part of the time? And how would you define which one would be better for other businesses? Opportunity or distress? So it was, it, well, it was, as, as I described, we wanted, we wrote a plan of staying totally independent without raising any money. Looked at that plan, thought that's a bit depressing. Thought, right, well, let's change the assumption that we're not going to raise any money. Wrote the plan on let's raise money and then just went out to the market to whomever. And, you know, we didn't expect it to be Coke, actually. Um, uh, but as it turned out, it was, and that was a good thing. Um, that... yeah. yeah, 
yeah, absolutely. So, so I think you're right. It, it, it might have been, um, but, but because of the structure of the deal, we, we knew we were selling at a bad time for us. So we, that's why we only sold 18% at that point. So it was a relatively small bit. And that money then allowed us to grow the valuation, the rest of it, a lot more. And I think overall, we probably did better than we would have done. So right. And a question over here and then lady at the back. Yeah. Um, hello. Talking Bye. about ideas. Um, how did you know which ones to pick? What, was there a specific methodology or something? Thank you. Okay, so on this is this is in your role as investing in. Is this a, 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 this is the jam job? Is this, jam Wait, job? Is this to do with jam job on? on oh, oh, when you said that uh, throughout the whole uh, process, you um, saw ideas from here and there, like places, other businesses. Uh, how do you know which one to implement? Yeah, which, what, what made you think that what, what made you think that Dumb and Dumber was a good a good? I'm, I'm sure it's going to go on the Judge Business School curriculum now. I mean, that's, that's um, there was a there was a good process of demands and you know, with MPD it was like demands and wishes go go through what what you can hear. But actually, a lot of the best ideas were sort of just they just felt right or they were funny. Um, you know, with the, the Dumb and Dumber vans, they were absolutely brilliant. They they were the best value marketing that we ever did. Um, we did a we did a big festival in Regent's Park for four years running. So, so gut, gut, no, fi gut feel? Gut feel, yeah, absolutely. And sort of, it was our thing and we wanted to do it, so what the hell, we'll do it. And, you know, we did try and then make it work to, to the business aims as much as possible. You know, so the big festival, let's get our buyers, especially from international markets who might have just been started. I can imagine the planning department, Coca-Cola must have loved you in terms of where's the <laughs> consumer research? Well, actually, it's here. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. Uh, exactly. Th take a question there. Yeah, please. Hello. Yeah. People started to interpret the innocent way differently. Yeah. And a bit of a tension between financial value and social value. Yeah, yeah. Did you have to pick or did you just say as long as there's value, everybody has their own purpose? Yeah, no, it's a re it's a really good point. So so actually we ended up just codifying what the business was and it wasn't it wasn't a choice that it's it's all about maximizing profits or all about maximizing charity. It's about actually we want to do all these things and we've got to make the sensible and clear um, decisions transparently when we're making those things and often find there isn't that much of a trade-off actually you can get the win-win you can do the right thing and make money at the same time and that's that's sort of the starting point rather than assuming you're going to have to trade one off right now I know there are more questions I'm just going to keep pushing on though on, on the I'm going to come back to everybody so I will get you in keep us going on on the the kind of the portfolio now in mm. terms of when you look at businesses, you know, you obviously, you, you come from this, you've been a successful entrepreneur, you are a successful entrepreneur, but now you are a successful investor in other growth companies. When you look at teams, when you look at um, businesses to invest in, what are you looking at? So, I mean, I, I suppose at first when we started doing it, it was gut feel. Is this person or this team really impressive? You know, you, you ask the questions, do they, do they answer them well? And then you, we started realising that actually it's a pitch, really. And what they're doing is they're pitching well, but does that mean they can run a business well? That's a very different thing. So How do you spot the difference? Well, so then you actually have to go into the business and see how they operate it. So, you know, part of the investment process, even in our early stage now, is to go and see if it's, if it's their bedroom, it's their bedroom, if it's the WeWork space, it's the WeWork space or their office, and go and see how the thing operates. You know, does, actually, is there any structure to it? Is there... Know, are there agendas? Do people make decisions? That that sort of thing. So we're as interested in how things run as as well as the big shiny lights. Right. Sort of pitch. So some of those we know, Greys and others, yeah. they're, they're they're emerging as really successful businesses. In yeah. terms of 
when you go in, are you an activist investor, or, or do you? I mean, or do you just provide the capital? It, it depends what the the entrepreneur wants, actually. So we've got to have a match between what we think is the right answer, what the entrepreneur thinks, mm. you know. And um, a lot of the time, the entrepreneur actually, it's their business. They don't want us in there. They would like us on the end of the phone and advising, but they don't necessarily want us poking around. And you know, if we're happy to do the deal on that basis, that's what we'll do. So, so at the moment, you must be looking at a lot of companies on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. When you look at that scene, when you look at the entrepreneurial scene yeah. today compared to the late '90s, how would you how do you characterise the differences in terms of what you what you're able to see now? Um, well, I, I just think that there's just an enormous amount more, um, and entrepreneurs entrepreneurship is a is is a career perfectly valid career path, whereas it's a slightly weird off off beaten track thing 20 years ago, um, and so. Uh, and people are much more willing to just give it a go, and if it doesn't work, fine. I've learnt my lesson, and off I go again. Is, um, is there a different type of ambition? Do you think, in terms of when you're when you're listening to those companies? I mean, are they very different to the to the three founders that were sort of like, you know, running their own referendum on their business? I, th I mean, <laughs> you know. It's... I think there's a range. I, I think as there always has been, there's a range of ambition. That you know, you see people who just want to make a lovely you know, business that will keep them in their husband going and you know that's that's fine for them it's a hobby business but it's it, but that's what they want to do or you get the people who want to build a global monolith and that's what they want to do and maybe the scale of ambition at the higher end has got bigger but i still think you see people at all ranges and you know whilst we won't invest in pure hobby businesses businesses that make nice nice small businesses that that's great as well so that's great for you yeah, but, but I, in terms of what what kind of gets you excited yeah though, is, is it the greys or is it some of the businesses that you know like like tukin box or yeah. what, i mean i don't know how successfully they are they're yeah. doing but i mean what, what's the kind of business that you're thinking this is what we really want to be behind so so whilst the most important thing is the team actually the thing that often pulls the heartstrings is like oh that's that's solving a problem i understand so it's going back to the very simple thing that's making people's lives better. Right. So, so the team is more important than what? The product? More important than... So that's, that's the... So from an investor perspective... Yeah, at our stage. At your stage. Yeah. And, and when, you, when you say the team, yeah. just very quickly characterise... And I'll take some more questions. Yeah. Characterise for us what the winning team is from the investor perspective. <laughs> and the problem is there, there obviously isn't a single answer to that at all. But what you do know is you have to be able to cover off... We've ended up with a grid of sort of 15 characteristics that we think the team needs to have across them. And they will have, you know, the CEO might have a set of them, maybe the, the CTO will have some other. And so you, you blend are they it Are they character they're, they're, assets? They're character assets, typically, yeah. yeah so there's that, some specific skills sometimes, but broadly they're character assets. Can you just share a couple with yeah, us? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a bigger thing about just clarity of thought and action. So back to... The, does this person really understand what they're trying to do, what their idea is, where they're trying to go with it? There's a lot of people who sort of have ideas, but they, they can't, they haven't actually managed to articulate what it is and why it's any better for anyone else than something else. That is really important because if you don't have that clarity, it's really difficult to make decisions. So they've got to show you what the true north is. Yeah, um, exactly, exactly. We need them to understand that bit. Then, of course, there's, there's, there's an intellectual horsepower bit that people need to be able to think quickly and answer questions and just, just be able to process quickly. There's a... Running a business is incredibly complicated, and there needs to be a certain amount of sort of nous to do that correctly. Mm. Um, then, you know, ultimately, you have to be able to hire people that are better than you. That's, that was our finding. It was like, so, so is this person or is this team able to hire convincing enough to hire other people?
these are some of the things you need to get into the mix. It's quite a long, there isn't a sort of trite, simple sort of, oh, it's these three things, and then you're fine. Um, it is quite a long process of things. Right, let's take a few more questions. Lady here, I think there's... Ah, yes, yes. my favourite thing <laughs> we ever did. Um, so tell us what they are first. And so, then, so yeah. yes, so the lady, if people don't know, um, every round November we get um, people to knit hats um, from around the world, put them on our, we put them on our bottles and give money to Help the Aged or the equivalent charity um, in different countries. And it started, let me just quickly dive in, just start, because it, it was a guy called New Adam um, in the office. I, I was old Adam. Oh, yeah, I, I, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, New Adam. I was thinking, um, is it N-E-U? <laughs> <laughs> um, we just sort of sat in the office one day knitting a hat, and I was like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm knitting hats. And I'm like, why are you knitting hats? He goes, the bottles look cold in the chillers. Did you, did you see that as a product? Did you see that as a productivity enhancement? He was our marketing manager. I was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. Fine, fine, okay. And then, then a couple of weeks later, it was him and Bronte, our people person, were there. They're both knitting hats. I'm like, okay, why, why are you still knitting hats? And they're like, well, because what I think is, if we put them on the box, they look so cool. Maybe people will buy them. And it's like, okay, um, but what are we going to do? How are we going to get all these hats knitted? You know, we can't go to China and get some poor kids to knit us. You know, Forced labour and us hats, that's not our thing. He goes, don't worry, I'll find a way, I'll find a way. Anyway, so he managed to do this charity link and ended up with the sort of daycare centres that help the aged, giving the older people the knitting patterns and, you know, passed the time and they knitted the hats and we got 3,000 made in the first year. And, and last year, and that, that was probably 12, 13 years ago, last year we had 3 million knitted. We didn't pay wow. for a single one. Uh, 3 million across Europe. Um, and so... Impact. Yeah, about, yeah. so, so the impact, so the, the beauty of this is that you put the hats on the bottles, they sell faster, so it's definitely a sales thing. You raise money for charity because we give money and the retail gives money to, to, to the charity, and people talk about it. So it literally it does that to that win-win-win thing. It does all the Do the, the team things. love it? The team the, absolutely love it. The especially office, the knitters. In the, the office uh, is full uh, of hats. November, October, November, before they get put on the thing, the office is just full of hats. There's a huge pen. It's the sort of size of that where just all the, all the deliveries of hats are going. Um, and then they go off to the factory to get put on. Right, let's take another question. Gentleman there, lady there. Yeah. Yeah, please, uh, can you just, you don't, I was going to say shout out, but don't. Take the mic because we're recording. There's a lot of knitters watching on social media tonight. Right, gentleman there. Yeah. Good evening, That's, Adam. Hello. Uh, of course, uh, Innocent Drinks makes some very, very good products. Uh, but my question really revolves around uh, innovation strategy. Um, obviously, you had a formalised innovation strategy to ensure that your innovations were successful time after time. At what stage did you realise that an innovation strategy was absolutely fundamental um, to the success of your products? How'd you get it right? Uh, how'd you get it right? Um, so, uh, our business plan, we started with three products and our business plan had four products on it by year five. So, innovation was not a big part of the, the plan, as you can tell from that. So. It was a bit of a realisation, oh my gosh, if we, if we do this right, then this can really fly. And if, if we get it wrong, it just won't work. So the biggest first step was actually just packaging innovation, moving our little bottles into cartons. And it seems like a, you know, a silly thing, but that was the thing that allowed us to do the bog offs in Tesco, the really go for it and get, you know, get it into being a staple in people's So packaging. Pockets. So that was packaging innovation. That was suddenly, oh, that's, that's one where you can go. And then obviously there's product innovation, actually new, new stuff inside. 
Um, and I suppose it became, by, the, by about sort of year five or six, it became clear that actually innovation was, was the way forward. But the, the, the difficulty is it's so easy to go really wide. And what I think we did quite well was kept innovating in drinks. It was really tempting to go and start doing ice cream, to do um, soups, to do all sorts what, of... Was there a product that you got really wrong? Was there one, when oh, you look yeah. back at it, I mean, what was... What, what would be the, oh, what would be the top? Give, give us the one where you just say, oh, my God, that was awful. What was that? Well, there was, there was, a, there was one, we had yogurt thickies, which were, I don't know if people remember, they had a cow logo on the front, and there was a vanilla drink. So, uh, there was a vanilla one, which was absolutely delicious. And the second one, we could never, ever, ever get right. Because well, with yogurt, because it was totally natural, it always just ended up separating. So every time you saw it on the shelf, it was just this sort of murky <laughs> red liquid on the top and this congealed mass at the bottom. And I'd be like, oh, God. And funny enough, it didn't sell. So it was like, it was just like, oh, we, and we tried and tried and tried and just couldn't get that to work at all. Okay, right, lady here, yep. And then we'll go straight to you and then we'll go back to the... Hi there. Hi. I wanted to know, for when you guys were first starting and building your team, um, oftentimes, like, I work in Starbucks now and you do a little bit of everything and you kind of come in to a job, but you often cover <clears throat> loads of yep. other aspects. So did you guys, how did you manage kind of having, or slash, did you have a team that kind of did that yeah. and then moved as you grew to kind of siloed actual kind of job roles and yeah. such, and how did that work? I mean, yes, inevitably at the beginning, we sort everyone kind of had to muck in. You know, we were all emptying the bins, we all drove the van, we all did that sort of stuff. Um, uh, we, we tried to get people's job roles quite, quite early on and be quite clear about, okay, this is what the company objective is this year, this is what the team objective is, this is, what your, this is how you see, and so that pure line of sight from what I'm doing day to day to what, what's gonna happen in the company. And that was, we spent a lot of time trying to get that bit right. Now, that still means you've got to muck in and do some of the other stuff, but, um, but actually it's hard to do that bit, and I think um, it's worth it, because if you can get the core of that sorted, people know what they're doing and know what they get assessed against, what they get rewarded against, and it's the slightly boring bit of it, because it's, it's quite hard to do. Because entrepreneurs tend to think about inspirational people, they yeah. tend to be process-resistant. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. is there a moment in time where you just think, actually, to get any further, we've got to change? Yeah, yeah, there to totally was. And, and I was always a bit like, oh, I'm not sure about this, but, but it, you know, John was actually very good at putting in the, the right process at the right time without it being too much of a burden. And actually, to spend you know, half a day thinking through what are the things I'm going to do for the year, that's not a big investment of time, really. And if that really helps you get clear, then it's, it's, it's totally worth doing. A question over here. Hi, um, for, for those of us who are serial entrepreneurs and have a plan, are very passionate about what you want to do, but you have a plan going forward, do you have any suggestions on what you've learned on exiting? When's the right time to exit and when, you know, how do you do it correctly? Um, I, think you've, I think the most important thing is think about you as an entrepreneur, what you want. Do you want to... Yeah. Is it about the money? Is it about the scale of money you've got? Is it about the journey you want to be on? Is it about... What is it about? And I think people sort of almost go to what should I do without thinking about what they want their lives to be. Because actually, starting a business is about what you want in your life. It's all-consuming. And, and do that bit of thinking first, and then think, OK, so what does that mean for the business? Do I exit it now or not? Mm. Is it, are there signals, do you think? Are there time, you know, do, what, 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 I mean, for somebody who's thinking about, you know, being a serial entrepreneur, they might want to yeah. go through and do a few things. I mean, I suppose the question is, when is too soon and when is too late? 
Is it, can you ever can you ever answer that? Really difficult to answer. Yeah. You know, the people around the table will have very different views, I'm sure. You know, but but you will know. You'll be the best placed person to know what you really want to do and make sure that what you do with the business serves your own personal goals. Frankly, if it's your business, because Mm. Well, well, let's stick with that. So I'm going to come back to, we'll do one last round of questions in a minute, but let's go back on some of these issues. So there are, there are big issues at the moment that are being discussed in the UK and actually around the world. Productivity, mm. trust, happiness, performance, all of these sorts of issues that have got major sort of connotations on how businesses are evolving right now. Um, you mentioned happiness. Um, we, we talked before we came in about Mark Price, the, the former uh, managing director of Waitrose, was talking about that, that happy teams are inspirational teams and inspirational teams are more productive in terms of what they do. His point being that the UK right now is not a particularly happy place for growing businesses. I mean, do you get a sense that there is a formula for a business in terms of how do you create a happy, motivated workforce, a happy, motivated team that will go on and deliver fantastic outcomes? I mean, I think I'll go back to the, the things I said earlier, which is about total clarity of where you're going, what the business is about, your purpose, um, how you as an individual contribute to that line of sight, and then being treated as a, as a, as a human being rather mm. than as a, as, a, as, a, as a number or a, a cost. And, and so you do all those fundamental things right, then having the table tennis table or a free breakfast or that is, is, is sort of icing on the top. But that's not the stuff that really matters. It's actually the, the fundamentals mm. that, that are so, important. So a lot, of, a lot of people sort of make the, the, the sort of the point that, you know, entrepreneurial businesses by their nature tend to be these inspirational places. There's some sort of X factor. Mm -hmm. And very large corporations can do things like stick the, ta the table tennis table in, but they somehow can't seem to evoke the spirit yeah. and is, is it is it just an intangible or are there some real tangible factors in terms of how you create those inspirational places i think um i i think it also is a bit about people being themselves at work so you're not you're not having an artifice you're not coming in as someone else you're actually able to to, to knit. Inhabit, yeah yeah you want to knit you knit um and and i think that sort of just takes the tension away, take, allows people to relax and actually then start becoming more productive. Um, but it's not, it, anything that we did wasn't driven through a sort of productivity lens. It was just feels like the right thing to do and it's the way we would want the place to be. But do you also think there's something about, you know, obviously we wrote this book, Mission, but there was something about that actually people bought into the mission of the organisation. Yeah. And so early on, I'd imagine on the, in the innocent culture, people really buy into yeah. that mission. Yeah. Is there a point where it starts to become harder to keep the franchise alive in terms of the buy-in to mission? I don't, I don't think so, actually. I think, I think the thing is, when you become bigger, you've actually usually got more resources to do more of the stuff that you want to do. And if part of the stuff you're doing is good stuff, then you can do more good. And so, you know, with Innocent, 10% of profits go to, innocent, go to charity, and most of that goes to the Innocent Foundation. That's still the case. Coke owned the business 100%, but that's still, still the case. Um, they've signed up to that, and that means we can... Uh, the ambition of the foundation is to help the world hungry, and that means we can help more of the world hungry by, by that, mm. by innocent growing. And so that, that's important. I tell you, the, that bit is a concrete thing where a lot of the team feel much more connected to the business because the foundation exists and because of the work the foundation does than necessarily <coughs> the direct mission of the business itself.
So, in terms of this issue about buy-in and trust, Edelman have just um, published their trust barometer mm. this month, and um, within it, it talks about the UK that trust in business in the UK fell to forty-three percent last year. Do, do you and, and the and the the extrapolation that they're making is that's not just a kind of esoteric thing. Mm. This is about team performance, buy-in of people in the workplace, their ability to give more in terms of their commitment. Mm. Do you, is that a real issue, or do you see that as the sort of stuff they discuss at Davos? Or do you think there's a, you know, or do you think there are bigger issues to do with performance of teams in terms of people buying into what business does? Um, I think I think if you get the formula right, actually, people in, people get engaged, and you know, we're in the fortunate position of choosing which business we invest in, and we tend to invest in businesses that we see good things happening in. So, um, so I've got quite a positive view on the way things are going. Um, I think there's far more transparency in corporate culture. I think there's far more business culture generally. I think there's far more opportunity to change things. I think there's far more money around for people who want to make stuff happen. So so I, I'm optimistic longer term. And is there far more opportunity for winning teams to emerge, do you yeah, think? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. People understand the importance of learning, development, um, all of that stuff that was always seen as slightly weird and esoteric 30 years ago. Now it's like, that's, that's core. People want to develop, people want to build their skill set. Last question before I go out to the audience, but when you start to take a generational lens on that, Deloitte um, run an annual survey of millennial attitudes where two out of three millennials want to leave their office, with, uh, leave their job within the next three years. In terms of that issue about a new generation, so not the 1990s generation, but actually Gen Z, the millennials, mm. do, do you see anything... I mean, a lot of people are sort of talking about these generations as if they're almost something completely new. Do you, or, or do you actually see that actually it's always been the same? There's been things... I mean, what, what, do, you, what do you see as what's different and what do you see as, as what's enduring? I mean, I think the thing that endures is that older generations talk about younger generations going, yeah. uh, what, the hell, what the hell's going different on? Different when so I was different. alive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that'll always be the case, right? Um, because we were once always really in touch and now we're not in touch with that anymore. But perhaps our loyalty in the workplace changes it's more yes i mean it can no wear doubt. out more quickly there's no doubt there's more more fluidity in the workplace but that's that's i think a good thing people aren't locked into things that they have to do for 30 years because that's the only option actually you know if you're for a lot of people they have opportunities to move around it might not be every to everyone's cup of tea everyone, someone people might like to have 30 year roles and that's fine but but that the world is changing that way so that's a good thing right we're going to take a few more questions and then we're going to we're going to start to move to that lady there gentleman there and then a lady over there. Yeah. Most exciting um, investment of 2018. Ooh, most exciting. Uh, and why? And why? That's a good question. It's quite a few actually. There's, I, I, I like Buy Miles, um, which is a uh, car insurance business, but it charges by the mile. Um, little dongle goes into the ODB port of the car. Got an app which looks like an Uber app. You can see everywhere you've driven and you can see how much that has cost you on your car insurance. I'm a low mileage driver, so I don't do more than 7,000 miles a year. For me, it's perfect. I pay a lot less on insurance and I think it's the way forward. And as cars get, become increasingly connected, you won't need that dongle. You'll just have, you know, you'll have that app and it'll be, I think it could be a really big business and it's a really great team. Do you think when you move out, how do you feel when you move out of your kind of like, I guess, food and beverage sort of heritage into like these, into tech and things like that? Do you feel confident? Do you feel... Well, uh, it's, it's, that is half the point of doing what we're doing, because what we've got is very good at running a juice business and a, a food business, and actually 
that, after a while, the, the sort of intellectual challenge of that went away and it became a different sort of thing. Now we're back into the world of, oh my gosh, the, how do we understand car insurance or pet food or child safety seats? Or, and, and so suddenly you've got this whole kind of learning going on again. And I suppose the, the reason you think you might be able to do it is you start drawing parallels across different industries, trends in those industries, the development stage of the businesses, the marketing challenges they all have. And so I love that brain stretch. And, and is there anything different on the teams? Is there anything, you know, when you sort of like look at the insurance business versus the, the food business, are, are, are essentially the dynamics the same? I think you need the same things, but often, you know, the personality types can be, can be different, definitely. Right. Uh, there's a question here and then lady there. Yeah, and then we'll get, we'll get to you. Then. How would you describe the management style at Innocent? Did you sort of left people uh, in control of how they approach tasks or did you mentor uh, your employees more closely? Uh, well, I think both of those, actually. I mean, I don't think they're opposites. I think, you, you know, you, it was give people a very clear view on what the business needed to do, give people a clear view on what we expected from them in the year and then help, but don't tell them how to do it, but help them to get there if they needed it. So that was, that was sort of the approach and I think that seems to work. Um, people had to be able to deal with vagary, though. They weren't spoon-fed, and that's really important. Take a question there. Yeah. Thank you very much for sharing your story. Um, I actually have two questions. Okay. Let's was um, exit from the beginning um, part of your growth strategy? Uh, no. Uh, we wrote a plan that said we would sell in five years, but that's because people said that's what you needed to do to, to get that was the zeitgeist at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And the other question is, um, would you do things differently? Um, yes, I mean, there were definite things we, uh, we would do differently. I mean, I, overall, it worked much better than we ever dreamed it would, so sort of pretty, pretty happy with that. But um, uh, I think we would have recognised the importance of getting great people on, into the business earlier. That, that, that was sort of took a few years to, to do. Um, I mean, had we have seen what was happening coming in 2008, we wouldn't have expanded in quite the same way in 2007. And, you know... Um, Maybe we wouldn't be in that sort of position then. But I, I, you know what, I, I, I'm glad I'm not running Innocent now. I don't want to be running Innocent now. I'm really glad that other people who mm. you know, are, are doing that and actually they'll be doing a better job than I would for that stage of it. I'm really glad to be doing what I am doing now. So I don't, I'm not saying that 2007 thing in the context of the deal with Coke. I actually, I'm very happy that where it is. I mean, I mean it's interesting that a lot, a lot of your story, sort of talking it through tonight, seems to be about... You know, there's a lot of humility about the lessons learned, right? You know, that actually you go in, you think, I'm going to be out in five years, yeah. and we're never going to fire anyone, we're never going to, you know, we're never going to sell, all the, all, whatever those yeah, things yeah, might yeah. be, is that in terms of your journey, your personal growth, I mean, is there something about attitude in the entrepreneur in terms of, you know, a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs have got a very fixed sense of success, of what True North represents, there's this kind of gung-ho West Coast kind of like sense of, right, you know, we're going to be masters of the universe. In terms of your actual journey, a lot of people see you as a huge success story, but actually tonight I think a lot of the things that have been really interesting have been about where you face failure and how you've learned from it or, or setbacks. Yeah, no, de definitely. I mean, the, the, the time I think grew most as an as a entrepreneur, as a, you know, a leader was in the tough times. I mean, the, the good times were, were sort of good and actually looking back relatively easy is that the stuff in 2008 and 2009 trying to turn the business around, that was when it really, um, I probably learned more lessons. And if you were to think about the, the primary attitude that you had to have, the character attitude that you and your co-founders had, what, what took you through those tough times? I think, I think 
we trusted each other. We knew what we wanted to do, and we, we would we would also listen to other people. We weren't complete. That you've got to be really quite balanced between being totally dogged and determined, and also listening to people and reacting to circumstances as they come in. And it's a quite a fine line to get that balance right because. You know, if you do one or the other and things go, things you're, go wrong. You're totally wrong. What was the idea again? Yeah. Right, OK. Yeah, right, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a question up here, gentlemen, there. And then we're going to take a couple more and then we're going to start to wrap up, I think. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my question is, if your employee, uh, your em employee had any big failure, like big critical failure in your business, mm -hmm. how did you react it? And whether you wanted to, I don't know, how say, change your reaction now? Mm -hmm about how you react to the... Or maybe another way of looking at that is attitude to risk as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, people say it's, it's great to fail. I'm, I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I think it's better if you don't fail, right? But, um, what happened to the guy that created the, uh, the yoghurt? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's, it's better uh, if you don't, but if you do, right, learn from it and, and don't do it again. So it's... Um, you know, and I think I think that was that was sort of what we tried what we tried to do at Innocent. You know, be very clear what success looked like, and if people didn't get there, try and understand the reasons why. And if the reasons why were things that could be changed, help them change it. If they weren't, actually, latterly, we learned it's probably time to change things. Um, and that that means move them out of the business. And that ultimately was the right thing for for people as well as the business. Right. Let me have a quick look. How many questions have we got? We've got quite. A, okay. How are you doing? Are you running out of? Do we need to give you any more water? About another five minutes. Okay, all right. Okay, well, we, let's try and just do a couple of group questions so that we could, we can just move through everybody. So just give me a quick show of hands. Who's got who's got questions? So if we take the lady here, gentleman there, and we'll go to the back after that. So if we could just we'll take them all in one one go, and then you can right. interpret them as as you will. Hi. You know, speaking of fail, when you actually three of you resigned, did you have a plan as to how much money you will put into business? how much time you're giving it, where the business needs to be in terms of your financial KPIs for you to keep going it. And did you take that long-term decision, say, for two years or five years, or did you consider it every six months? Well, do you mean at well, the start of Innocence? Do you mean at the yes. beginning of Innocence? Right, yes. Okay, okay so, so this issue about how you prepared yourself. Ge gentlemen there. So uh, thank you for your um, conference. What is the best way to find people to create a business? Are the best teams composed of friends? Are they composed of people who met by accident? Best okay. Or investor the experience? Best recipe. Okay, and then, and then a lady at the back. Yeah. Uh, in terms of your story, it sounds like you and your friends all spent some time working in corporates before you started a startup. Yeah. In terms of skills development, retrospectively, would you tell you know your past self to go straight from university, or did you think that you got a lot of value from those? I don't know how many years it was, but yeah. that that doing other stuff before going full time. Right. Okay. So I think there's something here with the two of you are joined about the kind of like the pre-entrepreneur. Mm. What do you learn? Yeah. How do you prepare yeah. for the journey ahead? And then there's something about the recipe for best people. Yeah. So so actually maybe that last question first because it was sort of. Um, Going back furthest, I, I, I did two years at McKinsey, two years at Virgin Cola, actually, um, and before wow. doing uh, Innocent. So four years, and the other boys did four years at their various places. Um, actually, because that really worked for us, I think I would recommend doing that. I was totally too green to do Innocent straight out of university. Um, other people are in a different position. They 
learn more quickly, take more risk. I don't know. I, I quite like the fact that... What did you learn more from, Virgin or McKinsey? You know what, you couldn't learn... You couldn't have had two more different places, actually. Oh. It, really, it, was, it was brilliant. Certainly Virgin learn. Cola was yeah. not exactly the no, triumph of his career. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, and, and that was a great place to learn from when things don't go right and learn loads of lessons around what not to do with, with Virgin Cola. But, and McKinsey was amazing for structuring problems and really thinking through how you crack a, crack a tough issue. So, so I got a lot from those things. But what I did think is actually that we started the business at 25, 26. That was a good time to start because no mortgages, no children, no other halves. It was just, it was, you could just put yourself into the business. So the risk So you could take a high. risk. You could take you a could... risk. It's a great, it was a great, and that's probably the thing that's changed. People mm. realise it's a good time to start a business, whereas previously it was like, oh, you know, you're going to be in your 40s. I think that's a tough time to start a business because usually you've got dependents. And that's quite... So that's sort of the, that, the first bit. In terms of your point on um, uh, did we, what do we think about failure and did we set ourselves KPIs? I mean, it's difficult because we, we hit our plan, actually. So it was, for the first five years, we pretty much hit, did what we said we would do, which is reasonably unheard of. So we didn't have to deal with... Oh, it hasn't worked. Um, we spend a lot of time on thinking what we'd do if it didn't work. I mean, broadly, the thought was, well, we'll get a job. I mean, that was it. So know, that was what's in the worst case scenario. Well, you could just, just get, get a job. job. Yeah, get a job. You know, and, and in terms of money that we put in, we put in everything that we had, but it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't a huge amount. It was fifteen grand each. Is kind of what we put into the business. I sold a car that I had, and that was it basically. And so, so it, it you know. You have to pay that debt back if you needed to, but it wasn't it wasn't like how close did you ever come to think because a lot of entrepreneurs say that worst things worst case comes I can yeah. get a job. How close did you actually think was there ever a moment where you thought I'm gonna have to get a job? Definitely before we launched. Once we'd launched, it sort of started to work and you could start, you get the positive affirmation of people saying, oh, I like the product, or I've seen it, or shopkeepers buying a load more, and you start getting positive signals. Beforehand, that's when the, that was the hardest bit, the 18 months when you don't have a product, you're still sitting in your bedroom, everyone's sort of going, what are these boys doing? Really going get, to get this thing off the ground? You know, you're the bottom of the list of any supplier because you're three guys turning up in a knackered old Fiat Uno, why should they pay you any attention? Why should they return your call? So it's it's that was the hardest time, and that was the, and that was when having three people made a big difference. So I couldn't have done that on my own because emotionally that journey was too hard. So just on that early team recipe, so we heard about the kind of the personal connections, yeah. but in terms of the people that made the business work, yeah. who were the, what were the if, what were the principal character types that you brought in? Uh, you know, in the end, it's going to be a slight dull answer about it's a real mix. You know? it? It's it's um, and to, to the to the question about where people come from. It was personal networks and then completely random, and that's what gave the mix. We, we always celebrated new people into the business really strongly because it was like, what, do we, what can we get from these people? What can we learn? What new things can we um, pull from them? So it was, it was, that was a very strong part of the culture. Was Cambridge an important factor for that network? Um, yes, it, I mean, it wasn't. Uh, was it important? A few people came came from Cambridge or had friends of friends. So, like any network, it's it's sort of it's just it's just a way of spreading stuff out. But it wasn't like we hired from Cambridge exclusively. Not right. But I'm just thinking about a lot of people who think about well, how do I get started with that network? Yeah, it's, I mean, it was about it. Definitely, I mean, you know, having a big big social network was definitely helpful. Right. Okay. Gentlemen here, we're going to take. Have you had a question? Have you? Have you had a question? No, you haven't had a question. And then we're going to. I just want to get you all in. And then there's a gentleman at the top there. Yeah. Um, 
No, chatty. I mean, I stayed, stayed in contact. They're very good at the alumni program, basically. They keep in contact with, with me and I can go back and do talks and bits and pieces. But and it was always very supportive and actually, you know, started now to, to link up with a lot more McKinsey alums on the investing side, actually, interestingly. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, it was more what I learned there that was probably the most okay. important thing. Okay. Question here? Yeah. We, we, we never had anything that was sort of politi politically sort of dif difficult, really. It was like, it was, if, you don't, if you don't do the role and you're really, and if you're not trying, that's a pretty easy decision. If you're trying to do the role if, and you're not succeeding, we'll help. But if that still continues, that's quite an easy decision. So it was, as long as it was very sort of clear, I, it actually was, was not difficult because it was always the right decision to, to, to move people on. Do, do you believe in... So I think there's two schools of thoughts, right? The, the, you know, there are people that believe there's always something brilliant to find in people, yeah. and I will be the employer that finds it. Yeah. And then there's a new Tech Nation um, report out, which has got this, this sort of view from a tech entrepreneur that you know that 33% of your business is absolutely brilliant in terms of the people in it, yeah. and you can't survive without them. 33% do no harm, and 33% of the people you should get rid of, and you never did. Yeah. And so, is there, I mean, I mean to where, where does the kind of the balance lie in growing a great team between those that just say, human capital is something we can get rid of at will, and those that say, actually, we're going to grow that family, that brilliant group of people that we yeah. can bring the best out of. I mean, of. I would totally argue against the, those percentages, because I think that 33% that at the bottom the bottom there is not right, that you yeah. have done the selection job right. So I think you, you, there's an onus on you to do the selection job right to make sure that the percentage of people who don't fit and don't work out is much smaller than that. And over time, it, you know, it, it, it might be that people, you know, uh, rolls outgrow them, but you should be getting much more than 66% here. I would imagine, as founders, you found it personally hard with things like redundancies and letting people, teams well, go. It's family, as you said. Yeah. It's totally. It's, it's, re it's really hard. And, um, but the realisation that sometimes it's, it's the right thing. Did you ever duck tough decisions yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah. And we and, always regret it. Right. And, and actually, I think the individual always ended up slightly regretting it, that we ducked it as well, because they were typically not enjoying themselves. We've got a question at the back there, I believe. And then have we just... And there's a gentleman at the back. And then I think... And there's a gentleman... So you've, we've got lots of... It feels like question time. Come on, let's... Uh, uh, let's uh, <laughs> you've, you've talked quite a lot about culture and you obviously created a very clear culture and, and values. But you also mentioned about the, the employee options. I just mm. wondered when you went from trying to attract great people to actually, I need to keep these people together and, and yeah. retain yeah. them and why that came about and then how you decided to structure it and... and I suppose it's partly how that related to the purchase with Coca-Cola yeah. as well. Did the options help you? Um, yeah, I mean, we did. We, to be honest, we had options from the very, very beginning because there, there was a sort of thought that actually we want to share in the success and if people are motivated, you know, we're all aligned to come back to that point alignment, then actually people are going to work harder, better, smarter and put more energy into it. So, so it, it, we always had options. Then when we codified the values, generosity was one of those, and that means generous with time in terms of people helping develop people, but also generous with the value that gets created. So options were very clearly a way, way of doing that. Um, and you know, everybody made money on the, the exit to Coke. Um, probably seven or eight people 
eight, you know, got over a million quid from it. So the early early team or the most senior team. So so you know people made money in in the business, which is what we wanted. Um, and and I think it was because yeah we we talked about that a lot, so we had to deliver on it. Right. We're going to take a question here, and then there was somebody over this uh, gentleman there, and then we're going to just ask one last question to finish. Just just please. Yeah, about when you started selling to uh, major supermarket groups. Um, so many of them are renowned for complicated business practices whereby there's not a straightforward buying and selling arrangement. They have you know, rebates and charges and payment terms and so on. So other than scaling up your production, what were the challenges you faced? Yeah when starting with supermarkets. What what's, what's the, uh, okay, let's, let's turn that into a question for you in terms of how do you be a buyer? You know what, the best, one of the best things we did at the beginning was not go to the supermarkets um, because we realised that, you know, why, why would they take the startup brand that mm. um, had no background, no experience and, you know, try and, try and get in there. So, so what we did was we went to them and said, uh, this is what we're doing. Um, we're not ready for you yet, but keep a lookout for us. And actually... Two years later, we start getting the calls, and that's how you, you start having your negotiation from the so right. So you've got to create the groundswell. You've got to create the groundswell. Mm. So we went to all the little cafes, sandwich shops, delis, health food stores. That was where we built the business, and that then meant that the supermarket buyers were under pressure from their bosses to, to then list the product. And in terms of the dynamics of change in terms of how consumers will shop, I mean, presumably a very different dynamic in the 90s and 2000s to a world where Amazon and others are going to be... It, an increasingly important part of the future. Yeah, and, and the Tesco's and Sainsbury's, they own far more stores than they ever did 20 years ago. And so it is, it is definitely far harder to start a um, consumer brand selling through the supermarkets than it, than it was 20 years mm. ago, in my view. It's absolutely... I, I mean, a lot, a, a lot of entrepreneurs describe it as a heartbreaking experience. That actually, I mean, is, is, was that your experience? with? The... No, it wasn't. Although, as the business then grew, it then became a really tough experience. And that's when you need experienced salespeople commercial people who've really got the scars and done the battles and, and that becomes not a match of equals because we'll never be the scale of Tesco or Sainsbury's but it became more of a sort of... Uh, so were they people that had worked in supermarkets? The, or, or for the big FMCG giants. Right, okay. Yeah, there's a question, just one last question, gentlemen there. Yeah. Uh, question about hiring. Uh, you had a, a story about uh, an early hire who you discovered was much, much better at the sort of doing deals with supermarkets yeah. than you were. Um, I think every growing business identifies gaps that they need to fill, and you want to hire people who are probably better than you at filling yeah. those gaps. But the conundrum is you don't even know what that role necessarily entails. Yeah. So how do you, when you're trying to hire in that situation, how do you define that role, and how do you give that person the space to do the job they need to do? Uh, one of the, um, when, we, when we were getting interviewed by Morris Pinto, our business angel, at the very beginning, um, he said, well, what we're going to do on the sales front is we'll get in the van and... Um, sell to all the stores, and um, and that'll be the way we do our sales bit. And he was like, well, "Why would you get in the van? You know, you, you know." I'm like, "Well, because I don't know what the job is, and because I don't want to do it, but I I need to know what the job is before I hire someone." So, you know, my answer to you is just you actually probably have to do the job a bit so that you get to understand what it needs, and then you can spec it. And that worked. That was that was the way forward. Okay, so we're we're almost we've got the last couple of minutes now. When, so, so Morris has come up quite a bit in this conversation mm. as this kind of, like, wise, not just an investor, yeah. but actually some form of guardian figure. I mean, tell us a bit about him and tell us a bit about 
you know, should everybody find a Morris? Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, is the answer. Um, <laughs> so we, we were trying to raise money for the business, and um, we tried everywhere, banks, um, business angel networks, and everyone basically said no. So we sent an email to everyone we knew saying, do you know anyone rich? And uh, <laughs> that was the subject matter. <laughs> do you know anyone rich? Yes, and, Morris. <laughs> and the answer came back. A friend of John's from Bain worked, said, yes, Morris, I, I'm doing an internship for him. So we sent him the business plan, and um, and it was really interesting going in for the first meeting. We'd gend up on the business plan. We knew all the numbers inside out, and he'd be like, "So, um, guys like ballet. What? Uh, how do you make decisions? What what annoys you about him?" And, the, or, you know, and uh, these quite deep personal questions, and mm. that was about two hours of that, and nothing to do with the business, nothing to do with the business at all. So what was he seeking in asking you those questions? He was trying to understand who we were, and how mm. we make decisions, and how we interact, and the levels of trust between us, and, and, and from that, he then gave it to his team to say, right, okay, you now interrogate the business plan, um, and, and they did that, and, and then, well, then actually, apparently, um, the team came back and said, no, you shouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and and in fact, he, he invested on behalf of a sort of investment club, and he was one of five people. And the way they did deals was that one of them would say yes to the deal, and the others would just follow. And so he said yes to our deal, despite his team saying no. And then the other people that meant to follow said no, we're actually not going to do this. So he didn't tell us this. And about five years later, it turned out that he basically ponied up the money without telling us five times what he thought he would be. Mm. Um, and he loves telling that story to, to the people Brilliant. who said no. <laughs> <laughs> and when, and when you look out, last question, when you, when you look out in terms of the vista ahead, Richard's been, you know, involved in the whole Remain campaign and, you know, we've got Brexit, all these sorts of things. There's a, there's a whole range of issues that are now facing entrepreneurs in terms of the global climate, things that are very different perhaps than the issues you were facing in the 90s. When you look at the, the role, the, the social importance of the entrepreneur, when you look at the climate for starting businesses, when you look at that open vista ahead, do you remain positive? Would you do it all again if I could wave a magic wand and give you your youth back and starting again in 2019? I mean, obviously, you're a very young person. But let's, let's finish there. 2019, the road ahead. Good place for entrepreneurs or not? Yes. Yes, ultimately, yeah. I think the UK is, is a great place to start a business. Um, I really hope we don't end up with Brexit, but my God. Um, but anyway, that aside, it'll still, you know, there's, it's still a great place, and um, I do remain optimistic. It'll just make things harder, bloody Brexit, won't it? There's just no point in it, but anyway. Is that the optimistic finish? <laughs> <laughs> Anything you want to fit first? <laughs> That Last very, message, very a, a group of highly sort of aspirational entrepreneurs in the room, people that are thinking about their own business, perhaps growing their own business. What's, what's your last piece of wisdom for them? Last piece of wisdom, every situation so, creates opportunities for people who've got the energy, got the motivation and, and got the vision to go and do stuff. So I absolutely would, would say that if you've got a clear idea and you've got a team that you can put together, go and do it. Entrepreneurship is the best thing you can do. So there you have it. Has Adam earned a golf clap or not. The choice is yours. <laughs>